Shrinkwrap Radio number 877, Enrico Nalati, Ph.D. on a Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Enrico Naulati, PhD. He is both a clinical psychologist and a psychoanalyst. We're going to be discussing his 2023 book, Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Rico Naulanti, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thanks for having me on, David. Well, I'm really happy to, to have you here, and uh, um, I'd like to delve a bit into uh, into your background. Your name sounds deliciously Italian. Uh, where, in fact, are you from? Well, actually, my name it's, it's Enrico Naulati. Enrico's Italian for uh, Henry. I'm actually <laughs> born in Scotland, believe it or not. Oh, okay. And there's a, a, you know, there's a fairly sizable Scottish Italian community. Oh, really? Scotland. Yeah. So Italians were emigrating to to Great Britain for the same reasons that they were to the United States at the turn of the, you know, the turn of the 20th century. So, yeah. So I was born in Scotland, but emigrated here in my, my teens. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been in the United States okay. and I'm a citizen since 1978. So a okay. long time. And I can hear a bit of that, uh, of that uh, Scottish accent actually. And I've been watching uh, Scottish dramas on, on TV. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I recognize the accent from it's wonderful the way TV can has in some ways has shrunk the world. And, uh, you know, and I, I recognize, I know some things as a result of these dramas, you know, about that part of the world. And, uh, uh so that's, that's really fun to discover. And, um, what about since you're a family therapist among other, other things, I believe you're, not only are you a clinical psychologist, I have the impression that you might be a psychoanalyst, but I don't I don't see that you went to a psychoanalytic uh, institute when I read through your bio. No, I I've n I've I haven't had psychoanalytic training, formal training, but I've been in years when I was younger of psychoanalytic psychotherapy myself. Oh, that'll do it. And then I, I was an avid reader of psychoanalytic texts throughout my 20s and 30s. And then I, I came through the clinical psychology program at Columbia University, 
which in the 90s, when I was there, was still a sort of a psychoanalytic bastion. And so I, I had the good uh, fortune of even taking a like a six-month-long seminar with the late Stephen Mitchell, who was the you know pioneer of relational psychoanalysis. So yes, I've deep uh, affinity for psychoanalytic thought, but but I also uh, got a master's degree in existential phenomenological psychology at Seattle yeah. University in the mid nineteen eighties. And full come full cycle, I would consider myself these days a kind of an existential psychotherapist. Yeah. Right, right. It's it's interesting because there's some interesting connections between us. Uh, mm -hmm. You said Columbia at that time was a bastion mm -hmm. of psychoanalysis. I went to the University of Michigan, and at that yeah. time that I was there, it mm -hmm. was a bastion of psycho psychoanalytic uh, training and thought. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I kind of, uh, that was also right on the beginning of the 60s when there were a lot of challenges to traditional models. And so mm -hmm. I, on my own, I kind of explored and was interested in a lot of other approaches to psychotherapy. I was kind of turned off in some ways. Uh, there were none of the faculty that I, wanted to be like when I grew up and um but I've kind of come full circle like you I I you know I the other point of uh is that I uh the school where I taught for so many years in uh Sonoma State University part of the California State University mm -hmm. system. and uh I went there because they had a department that was humanistic existential uh and so I embraced uh, that viewpoint for much of my training, but also rebelled against it in some ways too, and and came full circle. Uh, and um, tell me a little bit more about your your family structure. What what did your parents do? Uh, what kind of family did you grow up? What was your family of origin like? I mean, I. Grew up in a big working class Italian family. I'm, I'm one of seven kids. Wow. Uh, um, I as a as a teenager, uh, 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 went and studied for the Catholic priesthood. So for my entire from age thirteen to age seventeen, I was essentially cloistered in a a. a, a Catholic seminary in rural Aberdeen, Scotland. Okay. So I pulled away from my family very early on. And then sort of in the, by 1978, the whole family emigrated to the United States, or at least most of the family. And I sort of was on a, by then on a totally different trajectory. So I'm the only one in my family to get a college education, let alone go on and get a PhD. Yeah, same here. All my family are blue collar, working class folks. Same here, yeah. And so I, that, you know, I, I mean, that's sort of embedded in my value system that I yeah. had to like, really to be who I am and to value what I value, even to write the kind of book, this book, Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships. Nobody in my family's read that book. I've actually protected 
<laughs> them against it. If they knew that I was writing these ideas, they've read some of my other books, but if the, my mother's just turned 90 and if she read this book, she would be aghast. Oh my goodness. I've, you know, I've had to do some uh, psychological gymnastics to be who I am yeah. in the family that I exist in and to sort of protect them from, you know, the contents of my mind, you know, uh, to preserve, <laughs> to preserve, you know, family ties. Yes. That's understandable. And, uh, you know, all through school, I went through uh, Protestant religious schools. So we, we also share that, that kind of that early imprint of uh, religious belief and training and so on. So, mm -hmm. so it's it's great to discover these commonalities because partly because I I, I greatly admire you, uh, you know, based on on reading your book and 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 finding out a bit about your life because your book is very uh, self disclosing, uh, mm -hmm. which I always appreciate. I'm always looking for that <laughs> when I when I read. Uh, uh, therapy books. Uh, I don't want the therapist to be able to hide behind that persona, and and you haven't done that at all. Um, how did you come to write this particular book at this particular time, especially knowing that you'd have to hide it from your family, at mm -hmm. least from your mother? Uh -huh. Well, this is my fourth book, and I am sort of, you know, I the way I operate is that I get kind of, I do a deep dive into a clinical phenomenon or some mental health phenomenon that sort of occupies my time and energy for a good two or three years. Uh -huh. And it helps me step back and reflect on dimensions to my private practice. So I, for, I wrote a book on, on uh, play therapy with ADHD kids back in the 2008 and was very immersed in kind of child therapy and trying to do a deep dive into that. Then I wrote a book that's called Back to Normal, Ordinary Explanations for Children's ADHD, Bipolar, and Autistic-like Behavior. Yeah. Because, you know, that... Anyway, so I, I grasp on the topics that have personal relevance, but also that happen to uh, 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 shed light on and give me a deeper understanding of sort of like what I've come, you know, what I've dedicated myself to clinically in my practice. So I felt it was time to write a book on love and marriage. I was starting to see fewer kids, more couples, the older I get, yeah. I felt hopefully this doesn't sound arrogant, but I'm in a 30 year marriage and I kind of think that I got it right. Yeah. My agree with that yeah i felt like i could speak with some authority about love and marriage being an older uh married man and i wanted to look at and i started out writing the book to partly from a very personal place but also being kind of uh uh um knee deep in, in the research literature to look at how you know how easy it is to um uh, uh construe the normal ups, uh, the, the the normal kind of 
insurmountable problems, seemingly insurmountable problems in a marriage, to construe those as the beginning of the end of a marriage, instead of normal downturns, uh -huh. maybe even insufferable downturns in a marriage that exist in all marriages. And so I wanted to kind of write a book that would normalize just the 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 ups and downs yeah. of the long arc of a marriage. Yeah. Perhaps if, you know, uh, 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 I thought there was social value in a book like that, that may, if it got into the right hands, might uh, 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 help certain struggling couples from dismantling a marriage that, that is really uh, 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 repairable. Uh, so there was that. But then the deeper I got into the topic, I realized I, I, realize I wanted, essentially I was writing a pro-marriage book and I was realizing that there, there literally, at least to my knowledge, are no books out there that takes a pro-marriage perspective, pro-long-term intimate partnership perspective from a non-religious viewpoint, from a secular viewpoint. So then I, I wanted to write that kind of book and even more provocatively, I wanted to write a book that upheld secular values as the solution to what now in our culture is marital cynicism. I wanted to write a book that showed that secular values are not the cause of marital cynicism in America, but the solution to marital cynicism. Uh -huh. So that that's the thrust of the main thesis of the book right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. And uh, you did mention that, um, and something that I observed was that you do a, a beautiful mix of a very personal story, and, um, and drawing on on the empirical research in the area. And so, feel free to uh, sprinkle in uh, any of that research where it might be uh, relevant in our in our discussion here. Um, you know, I think literature and other popular media uh, misled many of us about the truths of love and marriage. Uh, what are some of the, what I would call myths that imprison us in these false expectations? And I include myself, I think I've been a victim in, in some ways of, of bad cultural messages. Mm-hmm. One would be, and that really stems from, I think, our Christian heritage that uh, uh, sees the high water mark of love as agape love, like joint self-sacrifice, that to sustain a marriage over time, you need to get good at joint self-sacrifice. I actually think that that's problematic. It My doesn't sound is, like a lot of fun. There you go. <laughs> and so then, you know, we'll often hear our clients and our practice talk about we need to work more at our marriage. We need to work more at our marriage. I think that that takes us down a dangerous path. Uh -huh. My secular viewpoint is that to sustain a long-term uh, relate, intimate relationship or marriage, it really uh, involves uh, um like what I call a mutual happiness project, that it's less about 
uh, uh, sacrifice and more about trying to uh, uh, um, assert and our own and make room for our significant others happiness needs. And by that, I don't mean some kind of corny, cheery, you know, overly optimistic perspective on, on happiness. No, and, and for anybody that reads my book, I move in a very Aristotelian direction in terms of what, what I mean by happiness. By happiness, I mean uh, a kind of uh, accessing and practicing and embellishing uh, ordinary human virtues like um, generosity, kindness, loyalty, forgiveness, uh, 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 to be able to like really recognize those human virtues, how important that they are in a marriage and, and, and to bring our better self to that marriage yeah. from a place of desire, from a place of personal desire, not moral duty. So, you know, I play with some of these ideas in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I look at the importance of what I call a, a fairness habit of mind that that um, I, I find notions of, of uh, unconditional love uh, problematic. I think love is very conditional. I think that we all want to, that love is about giving and getting, giving and getting, the, the re reciprocal giving and getting, uh -huh. and the balancing out of that. That, it, that it's okay to keep score. Yeah. It's, I don't mean that in a resentful way. I mean that in a, in a way of like fairness from a place of normal human fairness. To even ask it, yourself, uh, okay, am I carrying my fair share here? Yeah. yeah. Am I getting my fair share? Yeah. Is there a balancing out of giving and getting? Uh -huh. uh, usually in a good marriage, the, 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 uh, uh, that becomes a well-oiled machine. That you fall in, not fall into, but you you ex you you've you sort of learned over time uh, to 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 uh, give the support that your partner deserves, and, and, and vice versa. Yeah, and the reciprocal nature of that, I think, when it's kind of becomes automatic, is is one definition of flourishing love. Yeah, that you both. Are giving and getting, and you under and there is a deep respect for that. That if one person's over over giving and under benefiting, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. After uh, I uh, want to say how well your book is written. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the prose is beautiful. It's um, it's engaging and and and. And poetic and very quotable. Uh, I'd be tempted to uh, pull out only one quote because I don't want to violate the, uh, and I'll read it at some point here. But I, I don't want to violate, you know, the the, uh, the copyright, uh, so on. So uh, people will just have to, to take our word for it and discover that on their own. Um, actually, here's here's the. the uh, I see in my notes the paragraph that, or a sentence or two that I grabbed, uh, and I liked the positivity here. And so I'm quoting, 
of the book, the motivation to be together during the romantic phase of a relationship goes without saying, wanting to bask in the erotic excitement and mutual adoration lovers offer each other, getting lost in each other's eyes, the giddy laughter, uh, in um, enchanting smiles, the engrossing conversations, the electrifying sensuality, all fueling a dreamlike state of lovers feeling they were made for each other, a perfect fit. So I love that because I experienced that. I have experienced that in my life. And um, and I got hooked on it. I mean, it's, and so that's something that, that I wanted to talk about too is addiction. Do, do you, you know, mm. they talk about love and sex addiction and, and we've learned about in the, the brain's uh, chemicals like uh, oxytocin, which has kind of been called the love hormone. Um, so what about that? Is Do you think that's, is that an issue, uh, love addiction or sex addiction? Yeah, I mean, I think it, yeah. Well, I mean, there's that, but I think maybe what you're getting at there, David, is that that, that romantic love can be so mesmerizing and just so and vitalizing and stimulating that that for some people they need to keep chasing it yeah and it's hard for them to segue with a partner out of romantic love and into something that's less intense and over time can be more like can be kind of deeper so it's less intense but the the the, the 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 morphing into a different form of love and to be satisfied with that so i think that can be at the root of 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 what you're calling love addiction is the the psychological difficulties uh being able to uh uh settle for a different form of love that offers other psychological benefits yeah i think it's especially difficult in this day and age with the internet and social media and the excess access to kind of uh, opportunities sexual opportunities romantic opportunities and so i'm i'm fond of the of the stoic idea of desiring what you already have versus chasing and desiring what you don't have, which you believe is a better option than you currently have. Yeah, yeah. And I think in long-term, solid, intimate relationships, you somehow or another have to embrace that stoic notion of desiring what you already have. And frankly, what I'm seeing in my practice more and more, helping couples make the best of the good situation they're in rather than them sabotaging and making the worst of a good situation. Mm -hmm. We often assume that, that couples come to couples therapy because they're making the, 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 uh, the, they're striving to make the best of a bad situation, clinging on to threads of a marriage yeah. and that, you know, but actually I see more of the reverse couples who are unaware of the dormant 
goodness in their relationship mm -hmm. and, and ways in which they drift apart because they don't, they don't cultivate what I like to call gr gr granular expressions of love to show appreciate overt appreciation, overt affection, more generosity of spirit. So to bring their better selves to a marriage and stop making the worst out of a good situation. So yes, I, I'm kind of that perspective when I work with couples. Uh -huh. So you sort of uh, uh, highlight and, and bring out the those positive aspects there rather than they'll probably come in <laughs> showing off the negative wares. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that, and I, I think there used to be the research on, on um, marriage therapy that tended to show that, um, that the record for going into marriage therapy wasn't particularly good. Mm -hmm. uh, that often it led to divorce. Mm -hmm. And um, and so you may be part, or you and probably others may be part of a of a new wave that uh, to change that because I know one of the things that you advocate is the is that something that people can do to enrich and enliven their their uh, their marriage and relationship is to get in therapy. Mm -hmm. but the right kind of therapy you kind of say but it's got to be the right kind of therapy and i think maybe you've just spelled out but maybe maybe there's more you want to say about what the right kind of therapy would be well let me start by saying something that is fairly taboo to say and i hope it doesn't uh, and it may not land well with with many of our listeners but uh, our field is a female do dominated field yeah. And that we forget that two thirds of divorces in America right now are initiated by women. Okay. And so you've got a situation more than likely, but an 80% of uh, upwards of 80% of, of therapists are females. So if you've got a situation where most therapists are females and there's a disproportionate number of them have initiated divorces you have a situation that may not be marriage friendly in our therapy culture in general. And so I think that yeah, particularly we for need the to shine males. a light on that more. Yeah, particularly for the male. Transferential uh, vices. Yeah, the, the male uh, guy, uh, particularly if, the, if they're sort of coming from the working classes, uh, often will feel like a fish out of water, right? That... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> he feels like, okay, these, these women are ganging up on me. I, you know, I don't know how to talk this language. It doesn't really fit for me. And, uh, and I write about that in my book, that an effective couples therapy approach has to be male friendly. Yeah. There's a lot of data out there that shows that the most effective alliances, like that, that bode well for couples therapy are those where the therapist, regardless of gender, makes a connection in a heterosexual couple with, with the male uh, partner. And I would explain that in terms of how um, males are more reluctant to be in therapy. Yeah. 
Uh, they're also more likely to want to preserve a marriage. So they come into therapy with, you know, kind of low expectations. And if they're met with a kind of a therapist who really works overtime to bond with them and make space for their more masculine ways of being, then that uh, 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 male uh, a member of the couple in therapy will engage in therapy more, which can often be favorable for, for his female partner who has sort of learned to not expect a whole lot from a male partner around communication and uh -huh. marital investment and the things that matter to her. So it can be end up being a win-win in terms of being a marriage preserving experience in couples therapy and i can say more about that if you want but i wanted to get that perspective out there yeah which is sort of a controversial perspective but i think it's a data-driven perspective oh I, I think it's a very important perspective in my own personal experience and uh uh having been married for uh 50 years and uh uh, with a lot of a lot of ups and ups and downs, and have having had a bit of marriage therapy, so that I've been in that role of the uh, the the uh, stupefied male, uh, <laughs> often, you know. And I'm a reasonably verbal guy, but uh, but I can be uh, I can just go I go blank, you know, if if I'm. Uh, being ganged up on by the female contingent. So I can really, really, and I've been in a men's group now for 30 or 40 years. I don't uh -huh. know how long. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's been one way of getting that part of myself uh, seen, reaffirmed, working these relationships out with other guys and seeing how they're handling it and their marriages and, and, and learning from uh doing some vicarious learning from them. Uh, so all of this uh, definitely fits into uh, uh, into my story here. Um, you know, flourishing love is, uh, flourishing struck me as an interesting term because I'm familiar with it from positive psychology. Mm -hmm. to, to me, that's, that's where, I, where I've mostly seen the idea of flourishing uh, spoken about. And so, uh, so I, I I like the term though. I think it 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 paints a, a, an attractive possibility. And from there, I have to say what I found particularly inspiring in your book, really inspiring, was you share the vows that you and your mm -hmm. wife Janet. Uh, took and you you made each of you made up your own vows what has been about 30 years ago um and those vows from both sides were so uh so moving uh so so affirming you know so so love positive that uh i just wow wow I'm tempted to, I don't know if you'd want to read that part of the book. Uh, I'm tempted to invite you to do it or, or we don't have to, to, I can just leave that on the floor and say, uh, this would be a good reason to buy the book. What do you want good reason? There's a, there's a funny backstory there. You know, I, uh, 
uh, wrongheadedly put those in the chapter as I was writing it without asking my wife in advance if it would be okay with her. Uh I, it took me hours to dig them out. We, they were in some box somewhere. I found them. I hadn't, hadn't read them in 30 years, literally. As wow. I And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be nice to include those in the book? So I wrote them up, and then I told my wife I had done that. And she said, oh, no way. They're yeah. not going in the book. Absolutely not. That's too personal. Yeah, I feel exposed. How how dare you? And right, rightfully, I think she was yeah. offended. Yeah. So uh, we had an agreement that we would ask my son. He 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 had veto power. Like he, we would leave it up to him to decide. He got to read our vows. He's now about twenty five, and he got to make the decision about whether he thought it was a violation of some personal family, you know, history. And he said no. I think those are great. You should put them in the book. So yeah, that's how because of my son, they're they're in the book. But I, the, I, one of the main reasons I put those vows in there is that it was stunning to me how I hadn't read them for thirty years. How embedded in in the words in our vows was were all the secular values that I was writing about in my book. Yes, the importance of of uh love being something that needs to be actively maintained over time through a, a from a place of personal desire not some conjugal moral duty uh and that you that, that, that in the book I write about how if you approach marriage and long-term partnership from a place of uh uh I uh, we made a solemn vow till death do us part on our right. wedding day yeah. and that we are committed to that vow and God is looking down and we're going to fail him and fail our moral duty to each other. If we don't remain married, I think that mindset can lead to complacency where lo love is not agentically and actively and consistently uh, and intentionally kind of maintained to you know, and it can get in the way of of each partner bringing their better self, yeah, very intentionally and agentically to a marriage, and so in the vows, there's a lot of that that kind of language, and I and I'm looking back, just taken by how even thirty years ago, my wife and I saw the potential for something, and that. 30 years later, that there's been a realization of that potential that was embedded in our vows. And that that notion that you can write vows from a place of, you don't know in advance how this marriage endeavor is going to work out. But, but in your vows, you can certainly talk about the potential that you see that can be actualized over yeah. the long arc of a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful example and uh, actualization, you know, of of as you say, of the the ideas in, that you're championing in the book, and uh, so. And if I were in that same situation, my wife also would have vetoed it big time. <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't listen to my interviews. And it's, oh, it's pretty much the same thing going on here. She doesn't want to know. 
at some level. Um, yeah. uh, so I can I can understand that. And you know, before we uh, got into the interview, I, I remark uh, that you and I are of somewhat two different generations. Uh, I'm uh, you're thirty three. You said no, no. No, I'm sixty three. 63. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm expanding it even more. You're 63. I'm 83. Uh-huh. So, so I was born into a generation, and of course, part of this relates to me and my family and where I grew up, all of that. But what I got influenced by in terms of the cultural messages and latched on to was the heroic um macho if you will male ide- ideal or image you know that the male is uh uh so the in the novels that i love to read and the movies that i love to see the, the male the they were never the guy wasn't out mowing the lawn and 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 fixing up that the nest Mm-hmm. No, he was out in the world confronting evil and, you know, and um, and making, doing his best to, like a knight, take, taking on the, the obstacles and so on. So the, I think I sort of pretty deeply internalized that. The place that, it strikes me that the place that you're coming from is more is more influenced by feminism which yeah. which you know wasn't really yet a factor mm-hmm. d- during when i was coming up in that critical adolescent post adolescent mm-hmm. phase so in some ways the book was a difficult read to me oh. as wonderful as it is as wonderfully written as it is and as inspiring as it is you know makes me question my my thinking uh, or my old my old thinking my old habits i think less they're they're not my habits so much now though my wife might say differently um uh so (laughs) yeah where am i going with this now so so i think there's there's that and you know and as the feminist and our our, i would say are the very fact that i got into a men's group isn't is uh is due to women's groups you know Mm -hmm. and and that some men began to kind of get together and say well wait we you know we should do this too and we should learn from this and so you know i i've been uh uh seasoned by that as well mm-hmm. no, i think the book is really i mean flourishing love i mean i, I think and and the, and the research shows this that the the healthiest enduring relationships that uh, are those where there's an egalitarian equitable sensibility in that relationship uh um and th- this is where I'm big on kind of pushing back against the religious right and their focus on family values. And oftentimes if, if you, and this is a research driven perspective, if you look at marriages 
they're endorsed by a kind of a re religious perspective that that where the empower man more than women, and we're talking about heterosexual relationships here. Um, those marriages actually don't fare so well over time, especially in the in the modern era, where uh, uh, those hierarchical norms aren't as socially supported as much. So it was it's big in my book, you know, the, uh, to to address just an egalitarian, you know, what an egalitarian marriage looks like. Right. What is you know yeah. a, a fairness model of love? Yeah. The giving and getting what you all the way down to sex. Yeah. I have, I actually have a handful of articles coming out in the new year in different magazines and, uh, uh, and journals. I've, I, I look at uh, orgasm equality. I hope this is, you know, I'm going to get a little uh, 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 explicit here. But you know, if, if you look at the research, uh, uh, there's a sexual debt crisis. In the country, women are having far fewer orgasms than men in heterosexual relationships. Uh -huh. You look at sex, the data, about 90% of the time in committed relationships, sex will result in orgasm for men. That number hovers around 60% for women, even in committed relationships. So I, in my book on flourishing love, look at how if you're in pursuit of flourishing love orgasm equality needs to needs to be a a a, a, a component of that yeah so i i look at equality you know in the in the kitchen in the uh, uh in the bedroom and all domestic life and and and, and sexual life and and what what that looks like and how, and how 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 it um is emblematic of flourishing love, not just satisfactory love, but flourishing love. Yeah. 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 Well, that certainly makes sense to me. Um the um the realities of raising children. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you talk about uh uh what was it you had a title something about do do surviving domesticity yeah 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 right that's right that's the surviving that's the domesticity that that was kind of hit the nail on the head in some ways to my mind i i have to say I'm, we have uh, four adult children at this point and seven grandchildren Wow. But, uh, so there's been a lot of domestic taming, <laughs> taming of the wild man and uh, and dom and the flourishing of domesticity. <laughs> but but let's talk about that, because for me, that was uh, a big bump in the road. Yeah. You know, uh, my wife was I shouldn't I don't want to. She would not want me talking about her, so I'm not going to do that. I but tell I, I would say my experience of women uh, has been that they are they tend to be very uh, child oriented, and 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 the drive to have children. Thank goodness for the species. <laughs> their their drive to have children is very strong, and uh, and must often really must be attended to one way or another. 
so so how does one survive the uh the uh domesticity in your model well i think i i purposefully titled the chapter that surviving domesticity i mean i really wanted to put that right up front yeah that let's not romanticize or sentimentalize you know uh, um uh, uh what uh, 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 having children, rearing and rearing children can do to a, uh, to a marriage. And actually, one of the most robust finding, findings in social science research is how marital satisfaction plummets in the first year, first one or two years of the birth of children. Right. Something like that, almost 70% of marriages have steep declines in marital satisfaction with the birth of children. And we, we're we not forewarned about that. I think the vast majority of couples have children. Maybe there's some evolutionary brain-based explanation for it where we're blithely ignorant. Yeah, We're in complete denial about what having and raising children will, will, will do. So, so I put that right up front. Uh, uh, but, you know, I, I talk about the importance of authoritative parenting, not permissive, not authoritarian, as the, as the high water mark of parenting children, because it allows for more coupledom. The more you, the more you raise children to be more kind of independently minded and to uh, have a self and to give them a differentiated self, the more it can create enough healthy distance for that couple to have their own relationship. There's that. But I also look at the importance of like really being militant about not letting, letting over-parenting result in under-partnering and the importance of date night, the importance of what the moral religious right don't like to talk about is that it does take a village. I think they want to raise children within the strict confines of the nuclear family, right? Yeah. yeah. I actually challenge that model. I think that, that that's those are that's not good for marriage. For marriage is that model. We need to outsource the raising of children to coaches and ministers and school teachers and uncles and aunts and so that so that so that it can free up couples to to actually have a life together. Yeah. So I I write about that, and then finally one last thought, but then I come full cycle and I look at the deep, profound satisfaction that comes from being a parent over time, and witnessing your child, all that you've invested in raising them if you're raising them to be a person of character right. and you get to witness that when they become mature adults and yeah. you see them as being persons of character out there in the world, navigating the world, being citizens of the world and how profoundly satisfying that is as a parent. Right. We need to talk more about that in our culture because I don't know if you're aware of this, David, but there's a very strong anti-natalist, trend in the culture right now anti-what natalist, yeah, natalist meaning yeah. frowning upon having children and you know i think we need a counter narrative to that 
Yeah. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it can result in plummeting marital satisfaction if you don't watch out. Uh, however, the rewards can be tremendous if you do it right and yeah. you fully commit to being the best kind of parent that you're capable of being. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to uh, speak up here for uh, for my marriage and say that our kids have uh, get A plus on those. So and despite mm -hmm. whatever problems we've had, they've come out well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is very satisfying. Mm -hmm. and, and it's mutually satisfying for both of us. So, um, so that's important. Um, I've lost track of time. I, I, do you have any, how long have we been going here? I think we've been going for probably close to 45 minutes. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, some of the things that you mentioned uh, is uh, as important are doing conflict well, uh, mm -hmm. humor, mm -hmm. listening well, I think is, is very important as well. Uh, you talk about, you know, the one that sort of caught my interest was wrangling with roving desires. So mm -hmm. that's acknowledging that the, the roving desires will will come up. Uh, what do you recommend for wrangling? Them? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually one of the titles, of a chapter title in the book, Wrangling yeah. with Roving Desires. First, I wanted to normalize the prevalence of, of human beings, you know, having uh, uh, sexual longings, uh, outside of those that they have for their significant other and how common that is. I mean, I look at data sets on things like what are called back burner lovers or back burner mates, that something like 70% of adults fantasy, keep alive one or two or three uh, alternative mates that they, that they the fantasy partners uh -huh. that, that that will be fallbacks in the event of the, the, the current relationship doesn't work out and how oh, common yeah. that is. It's also extraordinarily common for, for pe people in healthy marriages to have crushes on other people. That's like something like 60% of people ha have that. So I wanted to normalize, normalize all of that because it flies in the face of these moral religious ideas about how once you commit to a partner that somehow or other your sexual uh, 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 um, sex life will, will somehow or other shut itself down or should shut itself down. So I wanted to normalize all that. And then, you know, I didn't, I took a position in the book where I didn't want to either condone or condemn infidelity use of pornography to have an active fantasy sex life. Uh, even I, I take a look at kind of polyamorous desires, what that's all about, what's going on in the culture right now, healthy ways to think about that. Um, I wanted to normalize how common it is for people who are actually in happy marriages, to, you know, having affairs. Probably there's a I have a statistic somewhere around here. Um, uh, 50, 50, one study I look at in the book, 56% of men, 34% of women, 
that have affairs will say that they're either happily married or very happily married. So we have to look at kind of how common it is for people to stray, both in their fantasies and their actions, and to have a non-moralistic viewpoint on that. Humans are, are fallible creatures. Yeah. As the uh, uh, um, biologist Desmond Morris says, we're not fallen angels, we're rising apes. We're not fallen <laughs> angels, we're rising apes. And we have to contend with our animality. We're lusty, lustful creatures. Uh -huh. And you somehow have to have a realistic viewpoint on that in a, in a long-term relationship. Oh, yeah. and, and affairs, if you're too moralistic about affairs, then that can be when they occur, the betrayal that's experienced can be seen as a moral injury, which we know from the research is much harder to forgive and recover from. When, when a betrayal is, is experienced as a moral injury, rather than just a normal human uh, psychological event, it becomes more difficult to forgive, recover from affairs. So I look at that in my book about how we need to just start to kind of have a non-moralistic view on uh, uh, roving desires and um uh and be have a more flexible versatile way of kind of contending with them yeah yeah uh i agree that makes a lot of sense to me well let's try to wrap things up and have you maybe summarize uh, who do you think this book is for who's who should buy this book I would say, so the book is Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships. It's a book, I think, for people who are cynical about marriage, but still want to pin their hopes on it, that are uh, 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 either entering a marital commitment or, or ensconced in a marriage, where they want, they want hopeful messaging about what marriage and children and long-term intimate partnership has to offer in terms of deep happiness, deep fulfillment, uh, uh, flourishing love. It, it, it would be of particular interest to people who are in relatively good marriages who want to have better marriages, uh -huh. not that are in bad marriages that they're hoping to convert into good marriages, but they're in good marriages that they want to uh, 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 um, have exposure to fairly practical ideas uh, uh, and ways of thinking about love that will should bolster their chances of of making that good marriage an even better one. And and also, uh, you've been very sex positive, and I think that's an important yeah. message in the book as yeah. well. Yeah, you know, I reach out to the LGBTQ community. And uh, look at what they're doing right that we heterosexuals can learn from. There's uh -huh. a lot of that in the book, too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. Dr. Rico Nalati, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. I've, it's been fun to have a, a very, what's felt like a very lively conversation. And uh, 
and I'm really drawn to your to your thinking and your approach, and I wish you uh, a lot of book sales. Unfortunately, I got off to a bit of a ragged start with my guest today, Dr. Enrico Ingolati. As I was setting up for our interview, I discovered that I seemingly lost my Apple AirPods Pro 2. I got fairly discombobulated because they allow me to record my interviews on two tracks, one track for my guest and another for my own voice. If you've ever lost anything, I'm sure you're familiar with getting locked into the loop of going back and searching in the same place over and over again because it's so hard to accept the loss. However, I decided I had to go on and forego that convenient feature. So I screwed up my guest's name in the introduction to the interview and ran into other technical problems despite my resolve to put the loss out of my mind. I'm at that age where I sometimes put things down unconsciously in places where they don't belong. I'm hoping that's what happened and that I will discover my AirPods in the house before very long. Once I got into our conversation, I was able to put them out of my mind and become fully engaged with Rico. In fact, he is very charming and engaging, and I was eager to discuss his book with him because it triggered some of my own issues around love, sexuality, and marriage. I wanted to be careful to not get bogged down with my own issues, but I did mention off mic before we began that I had been triggered by his book, which, by the way, is wonderfully written, poetically written, full of wisdom. Despite the little bumps I discuss, I wholly agree with his ideas. Before turning on the recorder, I took the liberty to ask him his age and discovered that, as I thought, we are of two different generations. He is 63 and I am 83. I'm of that generation that conceived the male role as being rather heroic and seeking adventure to slay the monsters of bad government and such that are abroad in the world. It's not that I had thought all that out, but rather it's just how I was given the time I grew up in and the attitudes I absorbed from books and movies and so on that I read. Our literary culture then and now, does not particularly celebrate domesticity. It does, however, put out images that are extremely romantic. I was hooked on those and, as a result, was in love with being in love for many years. Rico beautifully captures that period of infatuation in a paragraph that I read aloud on the show, and I'll share it with you here. Quote, the motivation to be together during the romantic phase of a relationship goes without saying. Wanting to bask in the erotic excitement and mutual adoration lovers offer each other. Getting lost in each other's eyes, the giddy laughter, the enchanting smiles, the engrossing conversations, the electrifying sensuality, 
all fueling a dreamlike state of lovers feeling they were made for each other, a perfect fit. Wow, he's really captured something there. For better or worse, that was the kind of relationship that I was looking for and hoping to sustain. The young women that I met who were drawn to me found me charismatic, but also soon progressed to the point of wanting to get married and have children. Well, that's enough of my story. Let me wrap it up by just sharing with you that I've been married for around 50 years and have four kids who have who all have wonderful values and are successful in the world, and we also have seven grandchildren. Enough about me. Let's get back to Rico and his wonderfully wise book. It's based on his own 30 years of marriage, as well as considerable examination of the research on marriage and relationships and so on. Rico is a realist. Domesticity and child-rearing present challenges that can be worked through as long as aliveness and vitality are valued by both partners. He readily acknowledges that marriage has its ups and downs and is not a state of constant bliss for most. We are in agreement that religion has had too much sway with notions that, while sounding commendable, are not necessarily serviceable, especially in our modern age. As an alternative, Rico argues for a set of secular ethics to guide our relationships. In his model, secular practices such as fairness, reciprocity, honest conflict, careful listening, and a focus on keeping lust alive predominate. I love the fact that he's so sex positive. Rico is an advocate for marriage and couples therapy. We discuss the fact that much of the past research tends not to reflect very well on the success of marriage therapy, as often as not ending in divorce. In fact, Rico has a thriving marriage therapy practice himself, and I'm not surprised to learn that because he's very focused on supporting each person in the couple's strength. Rico and his wife are good role models for the kind of long-term relationship that he's advocating. They've been married for 30 years, and I was really moved by their wedding vows that he shares in the book. I found those wedding vows to be very moving and inspiring, and as I remarked in our interview, to me those alone would be worth the price of the book. Having said that, I'm very pleased to be able to enthusiastically endorse the idea that you should purchase this book. And once again, the title is Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships by Enrico Nalati, Ph.D. I feel certain that it will be a good investment in your relationship and in your life. This is Ted Leckie. I'm an EFT couples therapist practicing in Toronto. I've been listening to Shrink Wrap Radio for years and love the breadth of modalities and therapeutic ideas I've been exposed to by listening. I can't count the number of books I've ended up buying after listening to your interviews, following up on wonderful new directions. Thanks so much, Dr. Dave. Your podcast is much appreciated. Thank you, Ted Leckie, family therapist in Toronto, Canada. Once again, 
It's pure synchronicity that your pitch should come up on the heels of an interview with another marriage therapist. I swear it was not planned that way by me. Ted, thank you for your donation and for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, psychologist, psychoanalyst, and marriage therapist, Dr. Enrico Engelotti, author of the new book, Flourishing Love, A Secular Guide to Lasting Intimate Relationships, for writing this groundbreaking book and sharing his work with us. Next week, my return guest will be Stephen Eisenstadt, Ph.D., Jungian educator and dream worker, discussing his new book, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest Power You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. And by the way, here's wishing you and yours a happy new year. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.